0: Welcome back. This is Kelly Gregg, G-R-E-G-G, of kellygregg.com. This is part of the podcast series on health topics and is number 17. This podcast is on lipoproteins. It really has little to do with the maintenance diet, but it is a greatly misunderstood subject and I am going to teach you something about it so you can understand what you read and hear about on TV. Again, I count on your common sense. And really, all you need is a little lingo so you can understand what the words mean when they talk about it. You are able to understand the logic easily. I will make a separate ebook so that you can actually read this information as sometimes it is difficult to understand simply by listening to it. First a warning. Listening or reading this chapter may cause drowsiness. Do not read or listen to this while operating heavy equipment. This field is changing all the time, and even now this information may be outdated. I revise this article at times, but even I cannot figure out what may be correct. Use this article as an approximation of what is really going on. I initially included this as an addendum in my The Ketogenic Diet for Beginners book to give those on the ketogenic diet some information about their cholesterol level, as it may or may not increase slightly on the ketogenic diet. Nowadays, your insurance plan may provide a free comprehensive metabolic profile for you. Now you are going along feeling fine, and one of your lab tests is abnormal. Now you have opened a can of worms, and the follow-up test may not be free. Overall, this free test done on people who have no complaints may be a boon to the insurance company and may not significantly help you. Cholesterol is one of these tests, and, if you are not eating a low-fat diet, it may appear that your cholesterol level is too high, and you will get the statin prescription. You might want to consider the risk-benefit ratio of taking this medication. I am going to include it here for the postgraduate food engineer for them to discuss the subject to those who may be asking them what they are doing. This subject is changing all the time, and even during my brief lifetime, I have discovered what I thought I knew about this was incorrect or incomplete, and have had to learn something new. I am warning you, next year I may have to retract this information and force you to buy a new edition of the book. This chapter has also been written in some of my other books. Don't worry too much. If I have to change something, it's usually only a paragraph. Let me talk a little more specifically about type 2 diabetes and lipoproteins. There is an ongoing discussion about statin usage. Statins lower your cholesterol level. It appears that if you are at high risk for cardiovascular disease, such as having had a heart attack or stroke, your survival will be improved if you take statins. It may or may not be directly related to the cholesterol-lowering effect of statins, but nevertheless, even I have to agree the effect is there. Therefore, if you are at a high risk of cardiovascular disease, statins may help you. Keep in mind, you don't get something for nothing, and there are side effects of statins. But in general, the benefit outweighs the risk. Now, if you have type 2 diabetes, you may be put in the high-risk category. By the time you have type 2 diabetes diagnosis, several things have already gone wrong with your metabolism, and even changing your diet may not be enough to correct things. Therefore, I give up, and you may need statins for secondary prevention. We call the purpose of my book is the Common Maintenance Diet, in which I am trying to prevent you from getting type 2 diabetes to start with. Things are a little different if you just have obesity or prediabetes. You may or may not be in a high enough risk category such that statins will help you live longer. You and your health care provider need to figure that out. One of the side effects of statins is that it may increase your risk of developing diabetes. I'm not sure if that will happen if you agree with the book, even if you decide to go on statins. If you do not have heart disease and you take statins for five years, we must treat 104 people to prevent one additional heart attack. We must treat 154 people to prevent one additional stroke. Many believe the side effects of statins are underestimated. Remember, I am not a licensed healthcare provider. Most of my healthcare information comes to me in dreams, so do not consider anything I have said to be medical advice or even reflective of the real world. My Mycology courses focused mainly on mixed drinks, shark bites, and sunburns. It turns out that Now Health Insurance offers a free screening physical every year. Included in this physical is some lab work. Part of this lab work may be cholesterol screening. If you are on the ketogenic diet, you eat low carbs and hence high fat. Usually, the percent of fat in your ketogenic diet is higher than that of protein. If your total cholesterol goes up, your health care provider may tell you to get off that crazy diet and go back to the high-carbohydrate diet, which made you go on the ketogenic diet in the first place. Over the years, cholesterol testing has evolved from being a number to being divided into many segments to now being divided into smaller segments. Also, throughout the years, I have been having trouble staying awake while someone explains this to me. Nevertheless, I will attempt to explain cholesterol in the diet without putting you to sleep. Also, you remember I have told you many times... The ketogenic diet is a fat-losing diet and is temporary. I believe the slight risk that may exist in the ketogenic diet is far outweighed by the benefits of losing the fat and overall will make you much healthier. When you lose weight, you go on the maintenance diet. Around 70 years ago, we decided we had an epidemic of heart disease. It used to be people died of infectious disease, but with the advent of antibiotics and vaccines, public health projects, now they are dying of heart disease. Doctors like to call things epidemics. It used to be they were real epidemics, like the Spanish flu or the Black Plague. Now they are heart disease or drug abuse or global warming epidemic sounds dramatic. Anyway, when we investigated people who were dying of heart disease, we discovered they had plaques called arthromas clogging up their arteries. These plaques were made up of cholesterol. To fix this, we had to reduce the cholesterol in our diet. That meant a low-fat diet, which meant a high-carb diet. Of course, no proof lowering cholesterol would work, but it's only common sense, isn't it? The government got involved, and for the last 60 to 70 years, we have been advised that we need to eat less fat. Billions of dollars have been spent to study this concept, and billions spent advising people to cut down on fat eating. Despite all these studies, it is difficult to show either that the cholesterol level predicts heart disease, or that lowering the cholesterol lowers heart disease. What we have done is made millions of people obese and drastically increased type 2 diabetes, along with many other associated diseases. Even today, many healthcare care providers believe a low-fat, and thus a high-carb diet, is the best and exercise will help you lose weight, despite now a large body of evidence indicating otherwise. Of course, you don't need a large body of evidence. Your common sense and observation demonstrates to you that exercise does not appear to be the answer to losing weight. And we can see the low-fat diet apparently didn't work because the incidence of obesity is continually rising. Of course, the medical profession blames this on you. You are just not doing a good enough job. Around the beginning of the 20th century, Several reports had come from Africa about the health and nutrition of Native people. These were well documented through the British Foreign Service and medical missionaries. The story was always the same. No diabetes, rare cancer, no GI disease, and no obesity until the Western diet with processed food such as sugar and flour were introduced. After a few years, the Africans looked like modern Americans. This was true despite what diet they were on before. Some were high-fat, some low-fat, and high-carbs. This story was repeated no matter what ethnic group was observed or what continent. The data was conveniently ignored. Science has progressed and now we have a better idea of what is going on and that is what I am going to try to explain. These same observations were made in North America with the American Indians. Your body likes cholesterol and uses it for all kinds of things. Your brain is mainly cholesterol. Most of the cholesterol in your body you have made yourself. Cholesterol is a type of fat. You eat some fat in the form of triglycerides. The GI tract breaks down this into fat and fatty acids. Then the GI absorbs these fatty acids and turns them back into triglycerides. It then binds these triglycerides together in a package form with a protein called apolipoprotein B and phospholipids. This package gets dumped into the lymphatic system and eventually into the blood, bypassing the liver unlike all the other nutrients that get absorbed. These packets are called chylomicrons. To review, you eat triglycerides. These are broken down into fatty acids you absorb the fatty acids. Unlike protein and carbohydrates, which then go on to the liver via the portal vein, the fatty acids are absorbed through the lymphatic system. That makes some sense, as if you absorb the fatty acids directly into the blood, they may all just float to the top. The phospholipid and apolipoproteins allow the fat to remain suspended in the liquid. Some of you have actually read the book and know that small-chain fatty acids may be directly absorbed into the blood. The short-chain fatty acids are a little more soluble than liquid. We have five different categories for lipoproteins. Again, lipoproteins allow fat to be transported in the blood. Fat, of course, does not dissolve in water, so you must use something like soap to get it suspended. The fat in your blood needs to be suspended, otherwise it would just all float to the top. Lipoproteins perform this function and thus distribute the fat around your body to be used by cells for energy and to make things. The lipoproteins are all less dense than water since they contain fat. To separate them, we must use a centrifuge, so we name them from the least dense to the densest. The least dense have the largest fat component. let review the categories of lipoproteins. Chylomicrons are made in the gut. They contain no cholesterol, but lots of triglycerides, and thus are the least dense lipoprotein. VLDL is very low-density lipoproteins. These are made in the liver and do contain some cholesterol. IDL is intermittent-density lipoproteins. These come from VLDLs and contain more cholesterol. LDL is low-density lipoproteins. These are divided into two subsets of small-dense LDL, also called SDLDL, and large buoyant LDL, otherwise called LBLDL, which are sometimes known as large fluffy LDL. Finally, we have HDL, or high density lipoprotein. These can uptake cholesterol in the tissues as well as transfer cholesterol and apolipoproteins to other particles. Okay, I am starting to get sleepy, and I'm sure you are too. If you want, you can skip to the last paragraph to see how this applies to you. If not, I am going to rest a little while, then continue. You nerds are welcome to follow along. If you recall, when we first started measuring cholesterol, we just measured the whole cholesterol, which included all of these lipoproteins. We then developed ultracentrifuges, which allowed us to separate them according to density. And as time has gone on, we now separate them into all kinds of small categories. When we started out, we just had the cholesterol number and made the assumption that if the total cholesterol is high, that must be bad, and that's why we're getting all these arthromas and heart attacks. The chylomicrons eventually get in the blood through the lymphatic system and interact with high-density lipoprotein to obtain different kinds of apolipoproteins, which allow them to bind to cell receptors and activate the enzyme, which breaks down triglyceride into fatty acid. Your cells do not absorb directly triglycerides. Once the triglyceride attaches to the cell receptor, it can engulf this triglyceride's after it has broken it down to its component fatty acids and use these component fatty acids for all kinds of neat things, including for energy. That's not to say there are fatty acids floating around in your blood all the time also, and you know by now these are generated when the fat cells convert triglycerides into fatty acids and provide most of the energy for your body when you are not eating back to the chylomicron. After it donates the triglyceride to the cell, it continues on its journey to donate elsewhere. Eventually, it runs out of triglycerides and goes back to the liver to be broken down and the components reused. So when you eat fat, this is what happens. Notice the liver is not involved much till the end. Also, notice no glucose or fructose was used in the process to create any fat. Next on the list is the VLDL, or very low-density lipoprotein. These carriers of cholesterol and triglycerides originate in the liver, where apolipoprotein B is made and turned into other lipoprotein particles. Note that chylomicrons are composed of triglycerides that you eat, while VLDL is composed of triglycerides that the liver has made from excess glucose and fructose. When you eat sucrose, the glucose portion goes into the blood and is used for energy by the body. The fat cells take up some of the glucose under the influence of insulin and make triglycerides for storage the liver can also take up some of the excess glucose and make triglycerides. As for the fructose part of the sucrose, the liver does not dump it into the bloodstream, although at high doses some does leak into the blood. Most is processed into glycogen or made into triglycerides. Most of your triglycerides made in the liver come from fructose. This fructose comes from sucrose, High fructose corn syrup, and also from actual fruit. When your liver makes triglycerides, it also must make a particle to transfer the triglycerides in the blood. This particle is VLDL, hence, the more fructose, the more triglycerides, the more apple B particles. The VLDL particle circulates in the blood and picks up a few slightly different proteins in addition to interacting with HDL lipoprotein particles, which donate some ApoE particles. You can see how this can make you sleepy. There are numerous ApoB, I'm not going to keep saying apolipoprotein B, I'm going to shorten it to ApoB particles that are slightly different. When I say ApoB, I mean ApoB100, There are also ApoC and ApoE particles, but the exact name is not important, just the general story as to what is happening. Anyway, after the VLDL picks up some additional apoproteins, it becomes mature and proceeds on its journey to give up the triglycerides to various cells in the body by the activation of the lipoprotein lipase enzyme in the cell, and eventually become smaller and denser. There is a protein found in the blood called cholesterol ester transfer protein, CETP, which also collects some of these triglycerides in exchange for cholesterol from HDL lipoprotein particles. Hence, as the VLDL loses triglycerides and gains cholesterol, which is denser, it becomes heavier and eventually we call it an IDL, or Intermittent Density Lipoprotein. Hence, the VLDL is now the IDL. The CTEP protein, C-E-T-P protein, and enzymatic process is one in which the lipoproteins gain cholesterol as they travel in the blood. They get progressively denser as they give up triglycerides and gain cholesterol. The triglycerides they gave up are used for energy and building things out of fatty acids. The cholesterol is used for building things like cell membranes or hormones. Or maybe it's making your brain bigger. We now have chylomicrons, VLDL, and now IDL. All along we are getting denser particles. About half the IDL particles are taken up by the liver cells and broken down into their component parts. The other half continues to lose triglycerides and gain cholesterol and thus become denser and turn into LDL particles. One of the differences between IDL and LDL particles is the number of ApoE proteins they contain. ApoE allows the lipoprotein particle to bind to the LDL receptors on the cell. When the IDL is converted into LDL, the ApoE leaves and only the ApoB is left. The affinity of the lipoprotein particle to the cell is then not nearly as much. Remember, this is a continuum, and we have somewhat arbitrarily made the divisions between IDL and LDL. And as you can see, the apolipoprotein particles are also in a dynamic state. We have made a lot of approximations here. We started with triglycerides, the cells needed for energy, as in fatty acids, and cholesterol to build things in the cell. When the cell needs to build things out of cholesterol, It usually just makes the cholesterol. If it needs more, it makes receptors on the outside of the cell to bind LDL particles. It then engulfs these particles and uses the cholesterol or triglyceride. One way it can regulate how many LDL particles it needs is to recycle the receptors or just digest them. LDL is not bad cholesterol. But is needed to transport cholesterol to be used by the cells. When we measure cholesterol in your blood, we measure all the cholesterol bound up in all the different lipoprotein particles. It turns out just measuring all the cholesterol is not a very good predictor of heart disease. In fact, elevated HDL seems to decrease your risk of heart disease. Since most of the cholesterol is transported in the LDL particles, we figured out that maybe if we just measured LDL cholesterol, it would be a better predictor. Turns out it worked a little better, but not so much. Half the people with heart attacks did not have elevated LDL, so what's the deal? As technology advanced, we were able to measure the LDL better. Since each LDL particle contains one ApoB protein, we can count the number of particles of LDL. It turns out there are two divisions of LDL to be made. One that is smaller, denser particle, the other is a larger, fluffier, and less dense particle. The number of smaller, dense LDL particles appears to be the best predictor of your risk of heart disease, Therefore, the lower the number of SDLDL, the better. Now, let's see how we can figure out to get fewer particles. If we eat fat, it appears in the blood as a chylomicron, which does not contain any cholesterol. Remember, we thought the atheroma made from cholesterol was the whole reason we started down this low fat, high carbohydrate path anyway. Now it looks like eating fat had nothing to do with it. What did cause this increase in lipoprotein particles? The liver had to make lots of VLDL, which eventually turns into the LDL, to transfer all the extra triglyceride it was making from all the extra fru- fructose stimulated by the elevation of insulin as a result of insulin resistance, as a result of high-carbohydrate diets and processed food, which overwhelm the liver's capacity to deal with carbohydrate intake. Do you mean to tell me we have been told to do the exact opposite of what we should have been doing? First, let's finish up with HDL. These are manufactured in the liver, with the main apolipoprotein being ApoA. These are small, dense particles, smaller than LDL, that can remove fat particles from cells and transport them for disposal. These include cholesterol, phospholipids, and triglycerides. We have already seen how it can trade cholesterol for triglycerides or transfer apoproteins to various other lipoprotein particles. Let me insert this. Apolipoprotein A1, or APOA, Is the major protein component of HDL particles. This protein accepts fats from the cells, including macrophages in the walls of the arteries, to transport elsewhere, including getting rid of them. It turns out the ratio of ApoB100 to ApoA1 may have a stronger correlation with myocardial infarction event rates than the older methods. The lower, the better. This may be a refinement of the LDL-HDL ratio. We want more HDL and less LDL. We started out just measuring total cholesterol, which wasn't very good. Now I think we have a better thing to test, although the treatment is the same. That is the common maintenance diet. Increasing concentrations of HDL are associated with decreasing accumulation of arterial sclerosis within arterial walls. HDL can also transport out particles in atheromas, those plaques that clog up the artery. Usually, heart attack and stroke are more related to the rupture of these atheromas precipitating a clot, rather than the progressive narrowing of the artery. Back to LDL. The small particles appear to be more dangerous as they are small enough to penetrate the walls of the blood vessels. Once there, they are more likely to become oxidized. Oxidation changes the structure of the protein and fats in the particle and upsets the normal metabolism. It also damages the receptors. This also leads to an inflammatory reaction in which the macrophage cells engulf these cholesterol-containing particles and the cells become laden with fat to become what we call foam cells. These make up the atheroma and induce inflammation. The HDL particles are even smaller than the small, dense LDL particles and can penetrate these areas to remove cholesterol. Okay, welcome back to those of you who wisely decided to skip the nerd section. Now we know that total cholesterol levels do not predict heart disease. We also know that total LDL cholesterol does not predict heart disease very well. We do know that the number of small, dense LDL particles does predict heart disease. We know there is a large, fluffy LDL particle that does not appear to be associated with heart disease. We can test for the number of small, dense LDL particles, and we want there to be less. We also know that HDL particles can transport unwanted cholesterol out of the cell and perhaps out of atheromas, so we want more of these. You went to the doctor. He said stop that ketogenic diet because it is raising your cholesterol and go back on the low-fat diet. He does not know that saturated fats increase the amount of HDL and increases the amount of large, fluffy LDL, thus may decrease cardiovascular risk. He does not know that a high carbohydrate diet increases insulin and insulin resistance. He does not know that fructose is the main source of triglyceride that is made in the liver as a result of increased fructose consumption from sucrose, high-fructose corn syrup, and fruit the liver must make particles to carry away this increased triglyceride load so it makes more VLDL particles. These eventually become LDL, and some become SDLDL particles, whose numbers are related to the increased triglyceride production by the liver. If the liver does not have excess triglycerides, that is, a low-carb fructose diet, the VLDL particles it produces become the large, fluffy kind. If the liver is producing lots of triglycerides from excess fructose, the VLDL particles become the small, dense kind. In any case, the saturated fats in your diet have nothing to do with it. They are carried by chylomicrons, which do not contain any cholesterol, and are recycled by the liver when they have given up their loads. This is unlike the triglycerides made in the liver, which are transported in VLDL particles and eventually become the SDLDL particles. I will repeat the bottom line. In history, it appears as if higher-carb diets were eaten during times of low food availability as these could be readily preserved. This carbohydrate restriction seemed to protect somewhat against the elevated insulin and insulin resistance seen in the modern high-carb diets, which are eaten when there is still plenty of food available. Processed food, like sucrose and flour, lead to a more rapid absorption of glucose and fructose, which leads to an initial greater surge of insulin and more total insulin secreted. Repeat this several times a day for 20 to 30 years, and you get insulin resistance with chronic high levels of insulin. In addition, the heavy burden and rapid absorption of fructose lead to the increased production of triglycerides in the liver, increased small dense LDL, and increased blood vessel disease. It also overwhelms the liver's ability to cope with the rapidly rising level and thus increase fructose in the blood. Increased fructose and glucose lead to increased ages. Increased insulin leads to decreased insulin-degrading enzyme in the brain and hence decreased amyloid metabolism. Low saturated fat in the diet means high carbohydrates in the diet. The absorption of saturated fats by the GI tract does not increase the number of VLDL particles produced by the liver. Increased triglyceride production from excess fructose and glucose does increase the number of particles produced. It appears saturated fats increase total cholesterol by increasing HDL and large fluffy LDL, something we want to happen. Eating several times a day and never fasting decrease autophagy. If you recall the chapters on ages and autophagy, you know increased age production results in cross-linking of proteins and stiffness in the arterioles. These ages cannot be easily removed and contribute to the actual aging of tissue. The goal is to prevent their generation, which has been increased by our high carbohydrate consumption, which has been dictated by our low fat consumption. Lower fat in the diet means higher carbs. As I have told you before, the human body is extremely complex. I am giving you approximately what is going on, enough for you to make some informed decisions. We discover different particles all the time and try to incorporate them into the discussion of lipoproteins. I have tried to give you enough knowledge that you can halfway understand what the scientists are telling you and use your common sense. Essentially, I am teaching you some of their lingo. I hope you can use this information here to make some reasonable decisions regarding your diet and what food you buy and eat. Remember, these scientists are the same people who told you to eat a low-fat diet for 75 years. Now they think maybe that wasn't such a great idea. I will make this podcast into an ebook, as sometimes the information is easier to understand when you are reading it. In addition, an ebook will serve to enable you to get to sleep easier at night. This is the conclusion of the podcast of Diet and Health. I still encourage you to buy the book, as if enough of you do this, I'm anticipating breaking the double-digit level for sales. This information will probably be good for at least a year before I have to revise it again, uh, secondary to newer information that has been discovered. But I'm pretty sure 95% of it is not going to change.